All right, good morning, guys. I saw some of you not saying good morning. Good morning, guys. Thank you. We always want to start out awake. It's a good place to start. My name is Steve. Uh, I am the lead pastor here at Trailhead, and this morning we are going to be in Mark chapter 13. So grab your Bibles, open up to Mark 13. If you don't have a Bible, grab one off the floor around you, and uh, that's going to be on page 850 of one of our Bibles. Now, if you don't own a Bible, we would be glad for you to take that Bible off the floor and keep it. We would love to equip you to open it and read it over the course of the week to discover um, and meet God. And so that would be our privilege, privilege to, to make that our gift to you. All right, so Mark chapter 13, and we are going to be starting in verse 32. All right, read along with me. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and he puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. The word of the Lord. Uh, when I was in college, I had a, um, a Volkswagen van. It was a 1972 Volkswagen van. I absolutely loved that thing. Um, and um, I was going to college in Dubuque, Iowa, and, and was from San Diego, and, and drove that thing all over uh, the western part of the United States, often sleeping in it, um, and, um, uh, and and often, honestly, at college, would just climb in and go for a drive, you know. I mean, there's not a whole lot to do in Iowa. The pigs are more numerous than the people, and, um, and so to entertain ourselves, after Lauren and I started dating, we would climb into the van and just go for road trips into nowhere, right? I mean, to follow the river or to find out what was on the other side of a cornfield or whatever it was, and, um, and we would often drive um, long distances. And I remember one time we were driving, and I don't know if we were coming back from Chicago or or what it was, but we were driving late at night, and Lauren's night vision isn't the best. Um, and, uh, and so I decided that I needed to man up and basically be the one who, who you know, stayed awake and focused on the road and kept driving. Um, if you're not familiar with Volkswagen vans, they're like, they really are like little buses, right? I mean, I got this big steering wheel in front of me, and, and um, um, it was a stick. Anyway, so I'm driving along. You guys don't care. Um, I'm just reliving the moment. That's what's going on here. I'm reliving the moment. And so I am, I am driving in this van, and, and Lauren is in the passenger seat, and um, we're driving along. And, and, and again, it's in Iowa, so that means there's nothing, right? It's just dark cornfields, and, um, and there's a, a stoplight. And so I pull up and stop at the stoplight, and I'm waiting for it to change. And, and, I, and Lauren's like, Steve. Right, and I don't actually hear it. It's more like an echo from a great distance, and then I hear Steve, and I'm like, "What? What?" Um, I was out. I mean, I was asleep. I had I had dreamt the stoplight, um, and um, if I remember correctly, I think we were actually stopped in the middle of the highway, um, and her hand was on the steering wheel, like she had been driving the van as I was going to sleep and was completely ignoring her because I was too proud to allow her to drive because I had to, anyway. Um, so that was one of, one of many times Lauren has saved my life, um, and I'm very thankful for it. So that's pretty stupid, right, to drive when you're asleep. Um, what's more stupid is to live when you're asleep. And the reality is a lot of us are sleeping through our lives. Um, we are going through the motions of living. We are getting up and getting dressed and we're eating and maybe even going through the motions of being good religious people, reading our Bibles and praying, um, going through the motions of being good employees, showing up, actually doing our work. Um, maybe more than that, maybe you're entrepreneurial and you're like, no, man, I totally invest myself in my work and I am absolutely, and, and you know what? I'm not talking about a level of activity. I'm talking about a level of awareness. And the reality is many of us are living unintentional, unexamined lives. And in doing so, we are sleepwalking 
through life. That is not the life God designed us to live. That is not the life that He called us to. He tells us we need to stay awake, right? We need to wake up. So in our text, Jesus is speaking to His disciples, and and this is um, during the Passion Week, which, by the way, is what we're celebrating this week. This coming Friday is Good Friday, and uh, we will have a service here at 7 p.m., and I, and I really encourage you to come, uh, invite your friends, uh, your family. Um, we're going to be gathering here, and it's going to be an experience where we're really just inviting you in to, to experience the heaviness and the joy of what it means for Christ to be crucified, right? I mean, it is, it is heavy, right? <laughs> the Son of God, the, the innocent, holy one, the lamb without blemish is slaughtered for our sin. That's, that's heavy, right? There's, but it's also good. That's why it's called Good Friday, because He took our place. He was our substitute. There's a beauty in the sacrifice. And so I encourage you to come out this Friday as we gather as a body just to sit in that heaviness and to sit in that joy. And then join us uh, next Sunday as we gather for Easter, Resurrection Sunday, to celebrate the resurrection of, of Jesus from the dead. So in our text, this is during Passion Week, during the period of time this, this week, you know, leading up to um, what we look back to, the, the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. And during this week, he has a lot of conversations with his disciples, um, and a lot of them are very, very formative. Or, or You know, cause Jesus obviously is very aware of how much time he has left. And in Mark 13, his disciples come to him with some questions basically about the kingdom, right? They're showing up basically saying, look, you keep talking about this cataclysmic end to the world, right? You're, you're, you just talked about the, the temples, these beautiful buildings, how there won't be one stone left on top of another. And, 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 and you're going to come in and you're going to usher in this new kingdom. When's it going to be? And what's the sign of your coming, right? So they're like, man, we just, give us some details, man. Uh, fill out our eschatology to be used the big theological words, right? Help us understand the end times. When's it going to happen? And what's the sign of your, of your coming, And uh, Jesus says a lot of things that are very insightful, but right here at the end, at the end of it, he says, as concerning the timing, right? Because everybody's always obsessed. When's it going to happen? When's it going to happen, right? And even today, people are obsessed. You got people, you know, making predictions. Well, it's going to happen in this and because of Israel and and then Gog and Magog. And they just talk these really weird foreign languages and then they start going off on, here's the thing. Jesus says, look, nobody knows when I'm coming back. Right? And then he says something that's incredibly theologically confusing for me. He's like, I don't even know. Only the Father in heaven knows. I don't get that, right? This is the same Jesus who can tell you the thoughts of your heart, the same Jesus who can predict everything in the future. Um, I don't get it, right? But the point is very clear. It's pretty pointless to try to set dates. It's pretty pointless to try to predict when it'll happen. He's not concerned that we know when it'll happen. He's concerned that we prepare our hearts for it to happen. That's really the point, right? He's not saying this is when it's going to happen. He's saying this is how you prepare your heart because it's going to happen, right? When you look at the text, but concerning that day or hour, no one knows, right? Not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. So what, the timing isn't for you to worry about. What I need you to worry about is this. Be on guard. Keep awake. Obviously speaking metaphorically. He didn't expect them to stay awake and never sleep for the next 2,000 years. Um, He is saying there's a different kind of of awareness, a different way to be awake, right? Um, A spiritual wakefulness, right? For you don't know when the time will come. It's like a man going on a journey. He leaves and puts his servants in charge and, and each one with his work and commands the doorkeeper, which is us in this metaphor, in this scenario, stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, you don't know when I'm going to come back, right? It might be, might be in a couple hours. It might be at midnight. It might be when the cock crows, which was around 3 a.m. It might be at sunrise, right? You don't know at what, what watch of the night I will return, but I will. What I say to you and to all, I love that. Jesus' words echo to us. He's speaking to his disciples. What I say to you, and by the way, what I say to everyone who comes after you, that's what he's saying. <laughs> that includes us. Stay awake. Are you catching the theme? I mean, he said it enough times, right? It's like four times right there in that tight little stay awake. Don't focus on the wrong questions, theological things that are interesting and debatable. 
I'm not interested that you have all the knowledge. I am interested that you develop a spiritual awareness, a wakefulness. What do we mean by that? Well, basically, Jesus is speaking to them and, and basically letting them in on a secret, right? You guys live in the overlap of the ages. We use that phrase a lot. Um, and, and it's because, intentionally, we live in this time between the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus and his, his second return. It's a unique time in human history, right? The age that is, is honestly the age that was. It's the age of humanity marked by our fall, marked by our rebellion against God. That problem's already been solved on the cross. That age has already had its death knell sounded at the cross, right? The age where humanity um, will, will be forever marked by sin. That, 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 that period is passing away. That kingdom is passing away. The period in which mankind lives for his own glory, to build his own kingdom, to try to compete with God's glory. That's passing away, and what is breaking in is a new kingdom marked by the resurrection of Christ. A new humanity that walks in submission to God once again, enjoying the shalom, the peace, the balance, the health, the fullness of God's presence because of the work of Christ on our behalf. That kingdom is passing away. The new kingdom is breaking in. We, we live in the overlap of the ages. And to live in a wakeful manner, to be awake, you guys, means this. To not lose sight of the fact that as followers of Christ, we are called to live for the age to come and not for the age that is. To, to not fall asleep spiritually as if this were all there was. As if this life was really the end point, <laughs> right? The resurrection, if anything, dispels that myth, right? This life is not all there is and death is not final. There's something much greater coming. A kingdom marked by resurrection and new life. And we are called as followers of Christ to live in light of that kingdom, to live with an awareness of that kingdom. So basically what he's saying is, look, guys, I, I'm going to reveal some things to you about reality, and I want you to stay awake <laughs> to those revelations. Because everything in you is going to be tempted to go back to sleep. Everything in you is going to be tempted to kind of just go back into going through the motions and living for the present and living in the now and living for things that pass away and losing sight of what is lasting and true and, uh, and joyful. Jared Wilson is an author who wrote a book called Gospel Wakefulness. It's a book that I've read several times and have given away, I've recommended. Um, it's a great little book. And in it, he describes an awakening of the soul. Um, to what is truly beautiful, to what is truly powerful, to what is truly meaningful. And, and then awakening of the soul comes through the gospel, right? The good news that, that God has not abandoned us in our sin. He has not left us to solve our own problem. He became our sin, died in our place, and rose again that we might be forgiven and have new life with Him. It's a way of upending everything we value, right? The new kingdom has an inverted value system to the present kingdom. Right? So what ends up happening is, is when we become followers of Christ and we believe in Jesus and his love is very real to us and very present to us, it does these things. It, it awakens within us a gratitude for the gift of God. And that gratitude changes the way we interact with all of life. See, those who, people who are awake spiritually are grateful people. And grateful people are more prone to joy and less prone to grumbling. Grateful people are more prone to, to energy, right? Grateful people are, are, are moved, right? Our greatest problem has already been solved. Our greatest debt has already been paid on behalf of Christ. Being awake simply means that we remind ourselves and are aware of that truth. That every problem we face is minor compared to the one that's already solved. And every debt we owe is minor compared to the debt that was already paid. And that 80 years from now, all those lesser things aren't even going to matter, right? It awakens within us a confidence in the promises of God. Somebody who is awake spiritually is somebody who is confident in following God. Why? Because he rose, Jesus rose from the dead and invites us into walking in that resurrection life for a kingdom that is coming, right? It awakens within us a desire for true treasure. It frees us from our, our lust to accumulate earthly treasures, to establish our wealth by what we own 
right? Because the economy of the kingdom isn't what you keep, it's what you give away. The economy of the kingdom to come is inverse of this world. It's not how much you, how high you climb or how much you attain or how much you own. It is how deeply you are moved by grace to become generous. How grateful, how, how gratitude frees you to the generosity of the kingdom. It's a new kind of treasure, a treasure that is based on love and joy and blessing instead of possessions and envy and competition. It frees us to love God in response to His love. When we talk about being awake spiritually, what we're saying is, is there is a stirring in our soul from the love of God. There are very, very religious people, people who are in church every time the doors open. They read their Bibles every day. They devote time to prayer every day, and they are not awake. And that's symptomatic. You see it in their lives. They, they're they're, they're kind of going through the motions. They're religious people, but they're not joyful people. They don't deeply sense the love of God, right? They take it as a truth to be understood instead of an experience to be deeply held. So this gospel gratitude, this wakefulness it really does change us. It is an inverted sense of looking at the world. It takes everything that we value in this world and turns it on its head, right? Everything in this world says you better work to get ahead. You better build a name. You better have a successful, happy life. You better avoid pain and suffering, all of these things. So when, when we live by the values of this world, right, we're living for other people's approval. We're living to be significant. We're living to have en- people envious of, of our life. We're, we're, we're doing our best to avoid any kind of pain or discomfort, um, why? Because, because this is, in that, in that way of thinking, this is all there is. And it's desperately empty, which is why I need you to keep telling me that, that it is worth something, right? Right? I need you to envy my life, my dinner, <laughs> my kids, my shoes, right? I need you to admire me and build me up. I, I'm dependent, right? Because in this world... The currency of this economy is selfishness and greed. It's all about me. But in the kingdom to come, we have an economy driven by grace that moves us to generosity. So here's what I want you to hear, you guys. Gospel wakefulness enables us to live in this life without being controlled by this life. It enables us to live in this time without being controlled of the values of this time. Right? Gospel wakefulness is at its heart a response to God's love. It is not something we produce for God, right? We don't like, okay, I'm going to have gospel wakefulness today, right? So we put it on our to-do list and wake up, right? Um, It is a response. It's something that comes alive in us in response to God's love to us, right? In, In the same way, when somebody shows us an unexpected kindness and it awakens within us a response toward them that we couldn't manufacture. Gospel wakefulness is a, a response to God and His love to us, so it has a lot less to do with go and do and much more to do with behold, if that makes sense. It's not something we go and do. It's not, it's not moralism. It's not this, this religious burden. It is behold the love of God. It is filling our vision with the beauty of who God is and what He's done so that our hearts will respond. All right, I'm going to give you a quote. This is... Um, from uh, Jared Wilson's Gospel Wakefulness. I'm going to break it up into a couple parts. But in describing this experience of gospel wakefulness, Jared says this, the gradual dawn of gospel wakefulness is occurring for you as the Spirit brings your sin to mind, pours more grace upon you, and bears more fruit of good character and good works in you. All right, so, so pay attention to what he's saying here. Gospel wakefulness occurs within us as the gospel comes to life in us, right? So God makes us aware of sin, our offense against him, where we fall short, where we're walking in rebellion. He doesn't do that because he's some cosmic killjoy. He doesn't do that because because he wants us to be miserable. He does it because our sin is the very thing that's keeping us from entering into the fullness of life, right? Our sin is our substitute of our plan for God's plan for us. Now, God designed us, and He designed us so that we could have joy in Him, a life full and abundant in Him. 
So he highlights sin within us so we can be given the gift of repentance, so we can reject the lies that control us. We can reject the things that are, that are enslaving our hearts. And the Spirit, who brings the sin to mind, then pours grace upon us. Again, we're not condemned. Christ was condemned in our place. So as the Spirit brings remembrance and awareness of sin, He also brings grace to heal, to forgive, and to free, right? And then that bears fruit within us of good character and good works. So we respond to that work within us by actually being changed. I'm not who I used to be, right? So I, I, I find new motivations, new freedom, new patterns of behavior, right? He goes on, he says, to this end then, you should read the gospel, listen to the gospel, sing the gospel, write the gospel, share the gospel, and preach the gospel, all the while asking God to administer its power more and more to your life. This gospel wakefulness we're describing, remember, is not something you produce. It is something that is a response to how God has produced for you. It is, it is a response to who He is and how He loves you. And since it's a response, the work of gospel wakefulness is to fill our vision with what leads our hearts to respond with love and gratitude, to remind ourselves how much we're loved, to remind ourselves that Jesus lived the life we should have lived and died the death we deserve to die and rose again in new life so that we could be forgiven and accepted by God, to remind ourselves that God loved us so much. He didn't wait for us to prove ourselves. He didn't wait for us to fix ourselves. He didn't wait for us to do anything for Him. While we were still enemies, Christ died for the ungodly. It's a message of undeserved, unmerited, unearned love, unconditional acceptance that says, I love you as you are, and I love you too much to leave you as you are. I will free you. I will change you. And so our job is to fill our vision with that message, right? As, as he so poetically puts it, right, to, to just immerse ourselves in the gospel, he finishes the quote this way. He says, situate yourself constantly in the crosshairs of the gospel. I love that. Situate yourself constantly in the crosshairs of the gospel. You cannot behold if you aren't looking. As my friend Ray Ortland has been known to say, stare at the glory of God until you see it. Hmm. So how do we situate ourselves constantly in the crosshairs of the gospel? are commanded to wake up. How do we grow in this gospel wakefulness? Well, if gospel wakefulness is in fact a response to truth and a response to love, to sit in the crosshairs of the gospel means to continually put ourselves at the intersection of truth and love. To let God show us things about ourselves that we may not want to see, but He does because He loves us enough to set us free. To remind ourselves that, that when we fail, we are not rejected, but are still loved. When, when shame wants to come in and blanket us and, and lead us to hide, that we push through that in faith, knowing we are accepted by God in Christ, and we are accepted by followers of God because of Christ. It means that we put ourselves in that crosshair of change, saying to God, I don't want to be what I was. I am not content I want to change. I want to be free. This is anything but passive, guys. When I say true change only comes in response to truth, some people take that as, as oh, I need to adopt a position of passivity. If God's not the one who does the change, well, then it's not real change. It's just me performing for God, some form of legalism. So therefore, I just need to sit around and wait for God to change me. This is anything but passive. This is actively putting ourselves in the place where we're inviting God to change us and set us free. Knowing that we can't change our own hearts. We can modify our behavior. We can rearrange the, the furniture of our hearts, but we cannot set our own hearts free. What this does is it puts us in that place of humble desperation before the God who can with an increasing appetite for the change that He gives. As Ray Ortland says, you stare at the glory of God until you see it. So I want to give you three ways specifically 
that as I kind of was sitting in this passage and thinking about it, this plays out in our lives. This, this idea of needing to grow in gospel wakefulness, this, this, this needing to grow in responsiveness to the love of God. What does it mean to, to stay awake as Jesus commands us? Well, there are a couple of areas that this plays out. First of all, in the area of personal purity. Now, purity is not exactly a popular word uh, in our culture, right? Not a lot of people walking around with t-shirts, purity, right? Not very sexy, um, not a word that, that is like really like hip. Um, and, and I think it might be because it's just seen as kind of, I don't know, old fashioned and goody two shoes and maybe associated with Puritans. Another word that's kind of loaded, right? When you think of Puritans, you tend to think of people dressed in gray, right? Who have no fun, who burn witches for entertainment, right? Just not very fun people to hang out with. Um, Well, here's the thing, you guys. Our understanding of purity needs a makeover because purity is a wonderful thing. A couple weeks ago, I turned on my tap and brown water came out. Anybody around here get the brown water thing? And then you find out that you have a boil order. And you're like, what is the brown stuff? And how does boiling it help? You know what I'm saying? Like this, I'm drinking bottled water for a while. I don't, you can tell me to boil it, but that just looks nasty, right? Who wants impure water? Anybody? Now we want pure water, right? Purity is a good thing, right? Nobody wants to drink contaminated water. That's the opposite of purity, contaminated, right? Who wants to eat contaminated food? Hey, I got this great contaminated steak, right? Let's go party, right? No, I mean, it's like purity sounds horrible when we talk about it in the moral realm, (laughs) but it sounds wonderful when we talk about it in every other area. That should tell us something that is wrong with our idea of morality. If we can't have fun, if we can't have joy, if we can't have um, a good time purely, maybe there's something wrong with our understanding of what joy and good time is, right? God designed us for purity. Our bodies were designed for purity. Our soul was designed for purity. And I'm telling you, the greatest joy, the greatest fulfillment comes from purity, right? Contamination brings death. Contamination brings unhealth. The gospel is the cure for our impurity, right? First of all, it, it pays the debt of our sin against God. So we're, we're forgiven by God. When we believe in Jesus, we're forgiven by God and covered in the righteousness of Christ, right? And so, so he takes away the problem of our sin debt, and then grace continues to work in us to change our hearts so that an impure heart is actually born again, into a pure heart. We actually become what we've been declared to be in Jesus. We've already been declared right in Jesus, and then He progressively changes us to become who He said we are in Jesus, right? So gospel wakefulness keeps us awake, you guys. And here's the thing. The more awake you become in grace, the more aware you're going to become of your sin, right? The the more your taste is tuned for purity, the more you're going to be able to recognize and identify contamination, And there are times in your Christian life where you may even feel like you're going backwards, right? Like all of a sudden it seems like there's just so much more sin in your life than there used to be. And you've been trying to follow God, but now you've got so much more anger and so much more resentment and so much more frustration. You're not going backwards. God's just in His grace letting you see more of what was already there. Why does He do that? To change us. It's an act of grace to free us, right? Take a look at this. This is 1 John chapter 3, verses 2 and 3. John, speaking to those who have believed in Jesus, says, Beloved, we are children now. Now that we've believed in Jesus and our sin has been removed and Christ's righteousness has been given to us, we are now, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. Now, now notice what he's saying. He's talking about the overlap of the ages, right? Your sins have already been forgiven, but they haven't been fully removed. You've already been redeemed, but your body hasn't been redeemed, right? So you've already received the benefit, but you haven't yet fully received the benefit. So he's talking about this tension of living in the overlap of the ages. What we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, when Jesus comes back and establishes his kingdom, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Now, notice the application. Everyone who thus hopes in him. In other words, everyone who is awake to this beautiful tension of where we are and where we're going does what? Purifies himself as he is pure. B- 
being aware of where we are in the human story awakens within us a desire for the better part of the story. It aligns our affections, not with what is passing away, but with what is permanent. It aligns our affections, not with the the passing pleasure and scintillation of sin and things that are sinful, but instead of the things that are lasting and wholesome and truly fulfilling. Now, you guys know as well as I do, if you've been following Jesus for more than a day, your hearts resist this. There's a piece of us that loves our sin. There's a piece of us that doesn't want to trust God. There's a piece of us that wants to be like God, to set our own rules, to follow our own path. And we want to define that as purity, right? What is right for me is is right for me. It doesn't matter if it's in rebellion to God. And, And that's the piece of us, honestly, that is deceived. And the deception's fairly apparent, you guys. It doesn't take a lot. Why? Because sin comes in and it makes promises it can't keep. Right? Just look at this and, and the sin promises. Then you'll, then you'll be happy. Then you'll be fulfilled. Then you'll feel better. And then you look at it and you're not happy. And now, in fact, it's worse. Right? Sin writes checks that always bounce. Right? So, so it, it says if you'll, just, if you'll just do this thing and there's pleasure in the moment, the consequences really won't be that bad. And then you get to the consequences and they're always worse than you thought they were. Sin always takes you farther than you want to go, and it always keeps you longer than you want to stay. And it always costs you more than you want to pay. And we know that from our own personal experience. We know that from looking at the lives of others. We can see where that path of rebellion goes. Everyone who keeps awake purifies himself as he is pure. So when the temptation comes in and says, oh, it's just a little lie, it doesn't matter. Oh, it's, it's just an image on a screen, it doesn't matter. It's just a little flirting in the office place, it, it, it doesn't matter. It's just a little money, no one's going to notice it's gone. These lies that come in that promise life, but in the end only give death, become exposed for what they are, the brown water the contaminated water that ultimately will sap our strength and our joy and our purpose and our hope in life. See, staying awake is a guard to our souls because it it, it gives us a proper appetite. It, it, It allows us to see what's truly healthy and what truly gives life, even if there is a temptation, because what temptation is is ultimately something within us that says, I want that impure thing. I desire it strongly. I I believe it's false promise. Staying awake allows us to not be responsive and controlled by our desires, but instead control and lead our desires. So when we walk in gospel wakefulness, we want to be free from what is polluting our souls and robbing us of health, from the lies that are killing us and robbing us of joy. And what I want you to hear is, 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 is sometimes this is just going to be really hard not feel right. We, we value, in our culture today, we value authenticity. Um, people are more concerned with, with authenticity um, than well, pretty much anything else. I mean, culturally, we just value it. And so I'll speak to people and they'll be like, you know, Steve, I hear what you're saying, but it's just not true to who I am. That's not how I feel. And what they mean by that is, is, well, since I don't feel that way, it would be inauthentic for me um, to, to follow that advice or to do that thing, right? Because this feels so true to me, it's got to be true. All right, so I'm going to let you in on a little secret. Sometimes obeying God and following God doesn't feel authentic. And what I mean by that is that piece of you that wants to rebel against God is screaming, saying, no, no, no. I want this thing. I want that person. I want that experience. And and I don't care if it's a lie because the short-term pleasure is at this point outweighing um, any possible consequences that may come from it. When you walk in obedience, you're not being inauthentic. You're, You're being obedient. And there are times when we need to simply say no to our hearts because our hearts are liars. 
our hearts are in line with sin and they lie to us about what will be truly fulfilling. See, if your heart says one thing and God says the other, every single time, trust God. Because He's the one that created your heart and He knows what will truly fulfill it. And so if you find yourself in a conflict where you're like, well, this just feels so right, but God says this. I'm telling you what, obey God, even if it feels authentic. Because what's going to end up happening is, is what you do is an expression of your heart. And that's why it feels inauthentic because you're like, man, my heart's not into this, but you're telling me I need to do it anyway. Yes, because what you do is not only an expression of your heart, what you do shapes your heart. As you choose to walk in obedience, you actually discipline your heart to become responsive to truth. You actually retrain your appetite, in other words, to crave purity instead of contamination. What you do is an expression of your heart. What you do shapes your heart. And so as we act in obedience, even if it's hard, even if it doesn't feel right, we are, in fact, increasing our appetite for what is real. We are, in fact, making a choice to stay spiritually awake instead of going to sleep, of saying, Lord, you've shown this to me. This is hard. You're going to equip me and walk with me. I want to be who you've created me to be. So when we are tempted to lie to get ahead at work or we are tempted to give in to grumbling and anger when things don't go our way or we are tempted to flirt with that coworker because things are hard at home when we are, are tempted to do any number of things, we come before God with that temptation, aware of our desperate need for Him to give us the strength to simply obey. And as God gives us that strength, He changes our appetites. And as He changes our appetites, we move more and more into genuine freedom. Which means we need to keep reminding ourselves that there is something better than this world. There is something more fulfilling than the passing pleasures of this world. There is a better promise tied to a better kingdom. And all this stuff that seems so tempting is just passing away. And as we fight to obey, God will shape our desires and increase our joy in response. Now, this fight can't be won alone. Um, another thing that our culture values, along with authenticity, is autonomy. I mean, culturally, we have this image of, of, of autonomy. I, I get to stand, in fact, I need to stand alone. There's a, a strength in some cases in um, Autonomy and isolation, even, even. Here's the thing. This fight can't be won alone. We need people fighting with us, and we need people fighting for us. This is called community, biblically. It is, it is about moving into intentional relationships with other believers, to know them and to be known by them, to kind of get into their life a little bit and let them get into our lives a little bit, where we're not hiding and posturing and trying to make them think more of us than they actually should, but we're actually letting them into the hurts and the failures and the fears and the hopes so they can know us and walk with us, where shame isn't causing us to hide and pride isn't causing us to perform. We can, in fact, be real with other believers and invite them into that, to worship together, to pray together, to be challenged together, to be encouraged together. And here's the thing. The Lord can only teach us to grow in love as we move into these kinds of relationships. There are certain things God can't teach you when you're alone because they can only come through relationships. They can only come through the gathering of God's people, right? And so as you commit yourself to relationship with, with those who are part of the church, you are basically putting yourself in the crosshairs of the gospel and saying, Lord, I need to grow in learning how to forgive and be forgiven, in learning how to love and be loved, in learning how to receive and give grace. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25 says this, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So catch the last part of the verse first. All the more as you see the day drawing near. There's the overlap of the ages again. What he's saying is this age is passing away. There's a day coming that will dawn a new age when, when the kingdom will come and be established. Live for that, right? Fill your vision. Remind yourself that, that this world is not all there is, that, that we're living for the kingdom that will last. And in doing so, You'll put yourself in the best, best position to be obedient. And in this case, that means committing yourself to relationships with other believers. 
right? That, that we are to, to, to not neglect the meeting of, of together. Now, the, the writer of Hebrews here wasn't just talking about the Sunday gathering, right? There are some people who are in church every time the doors are open, and they're not in community. They show up and they do their religious thing, but they're not moving deeply into relationship. That is not what, what this is about, right? Um, what he's saying is, is, is that we need to be in such a close relationship that we know each other well enough that we know how to provoke one another to love and good deeds. That word stir up literally means provoke. We know each other well enough to know, I know your weaknesses. I know where you're tempted to believe lies. I know where you're tempted to walk away from the grace of God. I know where you're tempted uh, to find your identity in something outside of Jesus' performance for you. And you know me well enough. And so you, I actually know you well enough to provoke you, to know how to say the word that will help encourage you to move in the right direction to embrace grace, to grow in Christ. And you know me well enough. See, this is way more than just showing up and hanging out with people. Way more than just showing up on a Sunday and singing songs. It is actually moving deeply into relationship with one another. Let's talk a little bit about what it means to provoke one another to love and good deeds. Uh, provocation is a, a um, provoke is a strong word. Some of you are expert provokers. You really are. You know how to push everybody's buttons, right? And you know who you, know who you are. Um, when I was a kid, uh, my brother and I were expert provokers of one another, right? So we'd go on these road trips, and the backseat of the car, there were only the two of us, and, and it was a, some 70s model car, which meant that we had about 20 acres of backseat um, in which to enjoy the ride, right? And, and um, I remember one time we were driving up to Lake Tahoe. It was, it was uh, just a joy-filled, incredibly dysfunctional family trip that was uh, very long and very boring. And so my brother and I are in the back seat. Of course, this is pre-DVD days. Uh, you don't have the screen, right? What do we have? Comic books and toys and, and each other um, and the stuff outside the windows. And so we studied how to provoke one another, right? And so we learned, right? So we're sitting in this back seat. And, and there's this big hump that runs right down the middle of the car. Um, some of you have no idea what I'm talking about, but back when it was rear-wheel drive, there was a transmission under there. And so the car was separated by this hump that ran right down the middle, and there was a seam right down the middle of the seat. And that seam marked the boundaries of our individual kingdoms, right? This is my territory, not yours. And, and so I learned how to quietly provoke my brother, right? So I would be sitting back there, and I would just quietly set my hand on the seam. And he wouldn't notice, and eventually he would. And he would shove my hand away, right? Why? Because that's his territory, right? You don't take anything from me. You don't know. Brothers don't do that. And, and so I would, I would, after a little while, just scoot a little closer and, and put my hand over it again, this time even farther, right? And this time he more forcefully shoves it back and, and goes back to reading. He's my older brother, so he can't put up with this sort of stuff from his little brother, which was awesome for me because I knew how to provoke him. So eventually I'm right on it, right? Like my shoulder is over the edge. I'm actually moving, like physically moving into his space. And, uh, and at this point, it's just too much. He, he just like, he, he hits me, right? And my dad's like, what's going on back there? And I'm like, he just hit me. And we pull over and he gets dragged out of the car. I win. Um, <laughs> right? So we were, we were good at knowing how to provoke one another. And some of you are really good at knowing how to provoke people to sin and evil and maliciousness and angst, Right? We need, to know how to, we need to know each other well enough that we know how to provoke one another to love and good deeds. Like, provoke it. In the same way I was provoking my brother to anger, we need to know each other well enough that we know how to push each other's buttons that causes a response of grace. I know how to provoke your button that actually produces an increased level of generosity within your heart. I know how to push the button so that when you're coming to me and you're griping and grumbling, instead of me reflecting your gripe and grumble back to you, I know you well enough that I can provoke you to forgiveness and grace. Now, that provocation, I'm going to tell you, that provocation isn't, isn't always pleasant. Because when I'm griping and grumbling, I want a friend who's going to sit there and go, yes. Yes, Steve, you're right. Yes, you, they're bad. Yes, they're stupid. You're not, right? That's what we want. We want people to echo our anger, our resentment, our, you know, like, I'm so justified in doing this because blah, blah, blah. We want someone to say, oh, yeah, you are so justified, right? Somebody who provokes us to love and good deeds is going to be like, no, you're actually not. And that's not the direction you want to go. 
You're not entitled to gripe and grumble. You're not entitled to this resentment. You're, you're not entitled to that anger. But they're saying it with relational rent, right? They've, they've paid the relational rent. I know they're for me. I know they love me, right? They're not just somebody speaking the truth in love. Somebody who doesn't know me, and they're just jerks, right? Somebody walking up and like, don't you know what the Bible says about that? That just provokes me to anger, right? Then I'm like, you too, you know, I'm going to, you know what I'm saying? Like, it just, I'm going to get angry at you. This is somebody who knows how to do it with, with a gentleness of knowledge, right? I know they love me. I know they're for me. And I know that when they say these things, they're hard for me to hear, but they're saying I'm in love. And so it provokes within me a response where I'm like, oh, you're so right. I wish you weren't, but you are. Stupid. Right? But it provokes within us a growth and a responsiveness to, to relationship. Um, see, community, good community, is where we come together and, and, and we're loving each other, we're knowing each other, but we're helping each other grow. We're speaking into each other's lives. Now, here's the thing. Some of you are like, man, I wish I had that kind of community. And you're actually starting to feel a little bit sorry for yourself right now. Like, man, I wish I had that person in my life. I wish I had that person that knew me that well, that could speak that word into my life. I wish there was somebody that knew me that well and loved me that much. Okay, you need to look at the verse again. Put it back up there. Can we get the verse back up there? You have to go backwards. Thank you. Notice what it says. Let us consider how to have other people stir us up to love and good deeds, right? Isn't that what it says? What does it say? Consider how to stir up. Your primary responsibility is not to find people to stir you up, but to find people to stir up. Your primary responsibility is not to find people to love you, but to love people. See, even that is the contamination of sin, where we self-centeredly say, I want the benefit without having to do the work. I want someone to do that for me. And what God is saying is, I'm going to do something in you as you do it for others. Now, it's not that you don't need those people. You need those people to speak into your life, to be present to you. But if God hasn't provided them to you, it doesn't take you off the hook for still doing it. God in this season is saying to you, I'm going to meet you as you meet others in their need. I'm going to bless you as you move out to be a blessing to others. See, the beauty of obedience, we don't get to dictate the terms. Well, God, when you do this, then I'll do this. If you'll just send me a good friend, then I'll be a good friend. If you'll just send me somebody who makes me feel comfortable, then I'll move into community. It's not the way it works, you guys. He says, obey, and I'll meet you in the obedience. Submit, and I will meet you in the submission. I will free you. I will give you joy. I will bless you. But I'm asking you first, obey. Love. Know people well enough to stir them up to love and good deeds. Ask God how you can do that. We need community. So to be awake means that we are fighting for purity in our lives. It means that we are pushing into community to, to let the love of Christ move through us into the life of, of others. We're, we're being a blessing to them, right? Provoking them to love and good deeds. And, and, and that's hard, just as hard for me to do for you as it is for you to receive because I put our relationship at risk every time I do it. Right? And, and, and I'm, I'm putting my comfort on the line every time I do that for you. But I'm doing that because I'm, I trust that God's power is greater than mine. And, and so as I act in obedience, I know he's going to trust. He's going he's gonna, to he's gonna honor my obedience. And he's going to bless you. And he's going to bless me through it. Right? So we push into community. And we also push out on mission. Um, because community was never a gift simply to be a gift unto itself. We are to move into community so that we can invite others into that community. Right? So we're fighting for purity, we're, we're fighting for community, and, and we need to be fighting to invite others into that community. Right? Take a look at this. This is Matthew chapter 5, verses 14 through 16. You are the light of the world. Strange statement. Jesus usually says, I am. <laughs> right? I am the light of the world. Uh, in Matthew 5, he looks at his disciples and says to them, you are the light of the world. And of course, we understand that to mean that, that as followers of Christ... We represent Christ. He's the light of the world, but as we follow him and imitate him and be changed into his image, we become his light to a dark world. You are the light of the world, a city set on a hill that cannot be hidden. 
Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives a light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. You are a light. You are a city set on a hill. You guys, the the kingdom of God is not a place that God will take us. The kingdom of God is a people that will be inhabited by the glory of God. We are the city set on a hill, the redeemed people of God. When we get to the end of the Bible, when we see the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven, it is the bride adorned for her wedding. It is the people of God. We are the dwelling place of the glory of God. So we are in this world, not for our own good, but for the good of those around us. We don't just live in the outpouring of God's blessings as if we were a bucket to hold them and contain them. We were designed to leak all of those blessings into the world around us, to to take that blessing and share it with others, to take the light that comes in and enlightens us and changes us and blesses us and share it with others so they also can see the light and be invited into its blessing. So we're a people walking in purity, we're a people walking in community, and we're a people invited to be on mission, the same mission that God is in in this world. Think about it. Why are we still here? (laughs) Jesus already died and rose again. Our greatest problem is already solved. Why are we still here? The kingdom has already, the price has already been paid, the foundation has already been laid. Why are we still here? Why isn't it inaugurated? The Scripture tells us it is so that many more can come to faith. This period of the overlap of the ages has a specific purpose. It is not so that you can simply live your life, accumulate your wealth, accomplish your goals. It is so that God can call many more into the kingdom. And we are here to be a light and an invitation into the light. That's why we exist. For the glory of God. Last week, um, I was in Arizona for the week, suffering for Jesus in the, in the beautiful sun. Um, I was out there for a Converge uh, church planting conference. We, we network with two groups, Acts 29 and, and Converge. And the reason that I love both of them is that church planting really is, is the, the heartbeat of both organizations. I'm passionate about church planting. We planted four years ago, and we've already planted our first daughter church. A year ago, we've had a hand in about a half dozen other church plants um, and, and it's been a, a tremendous blessing. So last week, while you were suffering through the cold and, and the, the, uh, the rain, I was suffering through 90-degree heat. Don't feel bad, though. It was dry heat. Um, <laughs> so I was out there and uh, spent, honestly, most of my time inside little rooms gathering with people. That's what I do at these conferences. I'm, I'm not actually out swimming and riding my mountain bike. Um, and, and, and here's what we were doing. We were gathering to celebrate. Um, and we were celebrating the fact that, that we, God had blessed us with the ability to achieve a goal. Five years ago, the leaders at Converge in our area, Converge Mid-America, which is basically our region, which is Illinois and Missouri, all the way up to the tip of, of uh, Michigan and, and Wisconsin. Um, this region, they had set a goal to plant 40 churches over the course of five years. Um, and that, that ended in, in uh, the beginning of 2015. And uh, we had actually planted 52 churches in five years. Huge win. Huge win, right? God, God blessed. And here's what I want you to hear. Trailhead was one of those churches. You know, we, we, we were planted four years ago. We were one of those churches that received the benefit and the blessing of people who came before us that said we want to equip and, and help people called by God to start a church, right? And so they came alongside us with coaching and finances, and they helped us get going. And then we've already done that for one other church, right? Heights Church down in Collinsville. We sent them out a year ago. We sent them out with people. We sent them out with resources. We sent them out with money. Had a huge impact on us, by the way. An impact on our budget, an impact on, on, our, on our, I mean, it just it knocked us sideways for a little while. Why would we do that? Right? And most of the churches, honestly, in Converge, most of these church plants didn't come from, from these huge motherships that were 10,000 people strong and had unlimited resources. And okay, yeah, we'll spare. These were small churches coming together, making significant sacrifices so that other churches could be planted. Why would a small church sacrifice its resources to see other churches planted? Isn't the point, I mean, once you start a church, don't you want the thing to grow, right? 
Don't you want to get a lot of people and, and get a nice facility and, and grow to a place where you have a big, fat budget? Not that churches ever do, but, you know, I mean, enough that, that, that we can hire staff and, and we're not running around like chickens with our head cut off and, and we can impact our community. And, and here's the thing, you guys. There's a temptation in the church world, just like there is in the rest of the world, to let our behavior be governed by the kingdom that is passing away instead of the kingdom that is coming. And the kingdom that is passing away is competitive and greedy. We are called to give away our resources. The treasure of the kingdom is generosity, not scarcity. Trailhead Church has given away over $100,000 over the last four years. We have planted a church and helped plant many more. Am I saying that because Trailhead is awesome? I'm saying, no way. That's the grace of God. I'm saying that we're ticking to, to a, 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 you know, following a different drummer. There we go. I'm trying to find the right metaphor, right? There's, there's a different thing that drives the behavior. And there's a constant temptation. I'm just sharing to you with you. There's a constant temptation on my heart to say, okay, that was enough. We gave enough. We did enough. We sacrificed enough, Right? And I'm not saying that there's, there can be a recklessness that actually puts the, the entire church at risk. And I'm not saying we'd be reckless. I'm saying we follow with, with a hard attitude of generosity. And I have to continually remind myself of the overlap of the ages, that my job is not to build this great church. My job is not to build this huge platform. My job is to be a servant of the king, inviting others into the kingdom. I become less so that he can become more. That's the call of the gospel, and it's the gospel call that we have to keep preaching to ourselves because everything in us wants to build our own kingdom to our own glory, even pastors. So how does this play out in your life? How does this play out in your context, in your workplace, in in your creative endeavors, in your families, in your neighborhoods? What does it look like for, for you to live by kingdom values, to be on mission, to love people in word and in deed so that they can be invited into the kingdom? <clears throat> because here's the thing, for us to be on mission, it means that we have a mission mindset, that we are sent in an age that's passing away to become ambassadors for the age that will be. There are people around you that desperately need to hear this message, that God loves them enough that Jesus died for them so that they could be forgiven and made new. There are people around you that are dying under the weight of their shame and their guilt. And they'll never let you know it because in our culture, we don't lead with our weakness. We lead with our strength. You're not going to find that out by looking at their Instagram. All you're going to find out is what they had for dinner, okay? But as you get to know people and as you reach out to them and listen to them and know them and love them, you will hear their hearts. And it's not that we have all the answers. And it's not even we necessarily have the answers they want to hear, but we have the gospel, And as we simply share from our experience of those that are being undone by the grace of God, we invite them to be undone and made whole in the grace of God. We need to be passionate about purity. We need to be passionate and committed to moving into community. And we need to be passionate about being on mission. That's what it means to stay awake. That's how we stay awake. That's how we wake up, right? For some of you, the best thing you can do to strengthen your faith is to give it away because you've never actually taken the step of taking a risk and sharing your faith with an unbeliever or or letting somebody know that, that you're a follower of Christ. You weaken your own faith because what you're doing is pulling back into the darkness of the age that's passing away. as you pull back from community because you're afraid to be hurt or because somebody said something that hurt your feelings or or you're afraid of of transparency or you're afraid of time commitments because you're just selfish with your calendar and, and that'll be inconvenient, you're pulling back into the darkness of the age that is passing away. You're putting yourself back to sleep. You're shrinking your own capacity for joy. As you deceive yourself about issues of purity, as you say, that's really not that important, this isn't that big of an infraction, as you you minimize your sin, you pull back into the darkness of the age that was, in which you are competing with God for God's glory, and you're robbing yourself of strength and joy and freedom. We need to be a people who push forward into the light, a people who push forward personally and together in community and on mission. For God's glory. 
when you'd be a city set on a hill, experiencing deep community and inviting in people into it. You know, for some of you, this is going to be very simple, at least on the low bar. I'm going to throw it out there. We're not a uh, primarily an attractional church. Uh-huh. And what I mean by that is we don't put up a big stage with a big show and say, now go invite all of your neighbors so that they can see the show as well and be invited into God's presence. We're, we're a missional community. And what that means is that we are people on mission in our local communities, moving deeply into relationship with people, getting to know them and loving them and inviting them through personal relationship to experience God. That doesn't mean, though, that inviting them into the gathering is, I mean, that's, that that's can be an effective way to invite people into the kingdom. And so like this Sunday, as we, we have Easter, maybe there are people in your life that you should invite, right? We're not, we're not going to have animals and laser lights and big show up here. That's not going to happen, but we are going to talk about Jesus, Right? And for some people, they have a less resistance to be inviting to, to be invited to church on a, on a on something like Easter, right? Where culturally the barriers are lowered, and people are like, oh yeah, I suppose I should go to church, sort of a thing. You know what I'm saying? It allows them to move maybe more safely into the influence of mission. So think about it. But let's be a people who push into the light. Let's be a people who wake up and live in the reality of what truly matters. Eighty years from now, eighty years from now going to have much clearer vision on what was truly important. Let's live for it. All right, you guys, we're going to move into a time of response. We're going to share communion in a moment. Before we do, I want to put some questions on the overhead and ask you to pray and, and just do some business with God. Um, let the Spirit speak to your heart in this. Um, so first question, where is God convicting you to fight for purity? I don't want to preach a whole other mini-sermon, but I do want to make a point. There's a difference between conviction and condemnation, and some of you don't know the difference. Condemnation is a blanket of rejection that makes you feel shame. And what it tells you to do is fix yourself before you can be accepted. That's not from God. That's from the enemy. That is uh, a tool of the evil one. Conviction is very different. Conviction says, Jesus died for your sins, so I don't reject you. You're fully loved and fully accepted exactly as you are, but I leave you too much to leave you where you are. So I'm going to poke on this spot right here and make you pay attention because I want to change you. Where's God poking? I guarantee you he is, unless you're Jesus and you're already done with the process. God's poking somewhere. Where is he poking? Right? Where is God convicting you to fight for purity? to basically reject the lie that's controlling your behavior, rejecting the false promise of life that can't come through whatever it is. What does it look like for you to instead believe God and push into purity? Secondly, who is God calling you or asking you to provoke to love and good works? Some of you need, desperately need a good friend, and I'm not saying you shouldn't pray for that. Do it. But don't stop or stay there. I stop moving here. Ask God who he is putting on your heart to provoke to love and good deeds. Who is God asking you to love actively? And, and honestly, that may look like a hard conversation. Like actually sitting down and talking to, some, to somebody like, because you know they're making bad choices, they're moving in the wrong direction, and you're going to love them well enough to say, hey, can we talk about that? Can we, can we actually open this up and see what God's best is here? For, for other of you, it's going to be encouragement. You're just going to see someone discouraged and just broken and hurt. And, and, and God's going to put it on your heart and say, you can come alongside them and encourage them. You can be the voice of hope to them. You can be the voice of resurrection to them, pointing them to the fact that this is not all there is. There's something so much greater. Thirdly, how can you be a brighter, clearer light of God's love? And that's really vague, but I left it that way. Um, what does that mean for you to be on mission? to be the city set on the hill, to be the light that's not under a basket? What does, it, what does it mean for you in your workplace, in your family, in your neighborhood to be the light of the world, to recognize that, that God has actually commissioned you to be an ambassador of the kingdom to come so that you can speak the truth and invite others into the light and the benefit and the beauty of forgiveness and a new start in Jesus. All right, let me pray for us. And then uh, we'll move into our time of response. Father God, we thank you that you are, thank you that you're a humble God.
Lord, I keep coming back to that over and over. I mean, how arrogant for us in our pride to think that we can build a kingdom that competes with yours, that we know better than you do, that, that, that we think that we've got this thing, that when there are no problems in our lives, we can go weeks without opening our Bible or praying because we're so self-sufficient. And I thank you that you're a humble God, that you don't reject us, that you don't get tired of us, that you continually wake us up to the reality of who you are and what you've done for us. That you wake us up to the beauty of humility and of your grace. Lord, I pray for my friends that you will stir their hearts, that you will make them feel how deeply they are loved by you. And in feeling that, their hearts will come to life and will respond and want to follow. Let us be a church, Lord, of people that are fighting to be awake, encouraging one another, helping one another, walking with one another, and loving those that are far from you. You guys, take a few minutes and pray. We'll share communion in a moment.